Hey listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I find the monarchy fascinating, but I am most definitely not a monarchist. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more. And I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today. The good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and see grenades every now and then, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. I also have a blog where I post photos and sources and short articles relating to past episodes and summaries for episodes and also episode links. And you can find me at uh, findinghistorypodcast.blogspot.com. Hello everyone and happy October. Welcome to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Vittoria, and today I'm going to talk to you about a super cool woman from the High Middle Ages, Christine de Pizan. Christine is not only the first recorded woman writer of the Middle Ages, but she is the first person to have made a living off of being a writer. So just a little FYI for you all, because I know it might come up somebody's probably bound to bring it up. Uh, So Christine's last name has been uh, spelled both ways. So it's been spelled uh, P-I-S-A-N or P-I-Z-A-N. I I feel like when I see her name, I always want to say Paisan, like, um, which just sounds very Italian. Um, But you know, she's from Italy. So before anyone of you was like, hey, no, you actually spelled her name incorrectly. Like, no, I think both are pretty acceptable. I think with a Z, maybe just touches on her Italian roots a bit. Um, And then the S version is, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just tell you about Christine. So I talked about Christine this summer for an art history class I was taking. The assignment was to discuss three female identifying artists that had not been discussed in the class before. And I knew I wanted to introduce Christine to the class as the class itself was on art and feminism. And Christine has been adopted by many feminists as a feminist icon. Of course, she never called herself this as the word did not exist. But Christine dedicated her life to the commitment of creating a voice for women and portraying them in literature in a positive, complex lens very much the opposite of male-dominated medieval writing, which always wrote women as being like deceptive, chaste, or whore-like. Since Christine was not a visual artist, uh, I had to present her in a visual way. So I shared images from her piece, The Book of the City of Ladies, in which she defends women by collecting various famous women uh, throughout history. And these women are housed in the city of ladies and Christine uses these women as like building blocks, not only for the walls and houses of the city, but also as building blocks for her thesis. 
Each woman added, uh, added to the city adds to Christine's argument that women are indeed valued participants of society and should receive the same educational freedom as men. So what I presented in my, um, in my assignment was I did take images from that, from that piece because she always had like, you know, illuminated manuscripts or just gorgeous images. And uh, I feel like I've heard mixed things like either she worked on, sometimes she might work on them herself, like she might do her own illustrations, or she did hire somebody to do it for her, which was typically a woman, which again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, but yeah, that's what I presented for the assignment, along with a brief uh, summary of who Christine was. So, did I get an A on that assignment? <laughs> yes, indeed I did. Actually, I got like uh, 108% total in that entire class. So who is an art nerd and who is a feminist? That's me. So, um, but that also made me want to do an episode on like the super cool lady because, uh, you know, she was also a huge fan of Joan of Arc, which I love Joan of Arc. And uh, her name was coming up quite a bit when I was doing my Joan of Arc research. And I'll share more on that towards the end of this episode. But I was like, okay, I, I need to talk about this woman. And just an FYI, the other women I introduced to the class were Iranian artist Arkavan Kosravi, who does amazing 3D paintings that kind of remind me of Betty Sayre's work. And both are still living artists and do some really cool art. And I recommend checking both of them out if art is your jam. I do know that uh, Kosravi does have an Instagram uh, where she does upload all of her works onto. And I believe she is shown in various galleries. So if I would highly re recommend checking her out, check both of them out, please. Do yourself a favor. Art is great. I also introduced a uh, past artist, uh, an African-American sculptor, uh, Augusta Savage, who was a leading artist from the Harlem Renaissance and launched the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, which later became the Harlem Community Arts Center. In this episode, I will be discussing the basic and fine details of Christine de Pizan's life and legacy, and I will also be doing a couple of readings for you. Will I be doing this in a French accent? Uh, not likely. Mon accent français est très américain. Christine was born in the year 1364 in the Republic of Venice, Italy. Therefore, she was Venetian by birth, but would move with her family in 1368 to Paris. Her father was, uh, bear with me on this name here, Tommaso de Benvenuto da Pisano, who would later slightly anglify his name upon moving to Paris, and he would be known as Thomas de Pisan. Sadly, I could find no mention of Christine's mother's name. However, I do know that she was an aristocratic woman from the Mondino family of Venice. Her and Thomas had three children, two boys and a girl. Thomas was a Renaissance man way before the Renaissance even started to really like pop off. He was a physician and a court astrologer. 
At the time, I guess, these professions were both uh, pretty intertwined. Uh, medieval astrologers were highly respected scholars that believed the star's movements influenced the events on Earth and had an effect on the environment, such as crop growth and wind patterns. Medieval astrologers were often experts in mathematics, medicine, astronomy, and philosophy. Honestly, it sounds like a pretty cool job to me, like definitely one of the better jobs of the Middle Ages, like top five at least. It's like kind of funny to me that, um, I don't know if funny is the right word, but interesting, I guess, that people were so into astrology back in the Middle Ages, even though like everyone was so devoutly religious and like I had kids I went to school with who came from like super Christian families and like Mormon families and evangelical families and they were like astrology is the the devil like tarot cards are the devil and that was just like that was just it for them they're like no astrology is terrible but in the middle ages they were like ah yes so the moon is in Capricorn and you cannot invade England until Aries is in the ninth house. And I totally made that up because I'm not too sure exactly what kind of uh, advice they would give the king, but that is how I picture it. And like, I don't know. So I guess it's just really interesting. And people always view the Middle Ages as being a very superstitious time. And like it was in some regards, but also not. I don't know. Just something to think about. Anyway, Thomas moved the family as he uh, got a job in the French court as Charles V's uh, court astrologer. So he got the job and they all moved over there. And Christine's mother wanted her to have like a woman's education as she would learn her place in the world. And therefore, she was raised to spin cloth and do domestic chores. However, Thomas, Christine's father, noticed that she was very much drawn to his uh, texts and manuscripts. Therefore, he insisted that she receive an education uh, similar to her brother's, and she was taught how to read and write in Latin, French, and of course, Italian. And she also, uh, she was also raised with the Greek classics. The family took up residency on the right bank of the River Seine, near Paris's literary industry. Christine grew up in the palace of Charles V, well known for its extensive library. Christine would have been in the presence of scribes, illustrators, and illuminators who produced the books of that time. No doubt she was just completely enchanted by their everyday lives. At the age of 15, Christine would marry Etienne de Castel, who was the royal secretary of the court in 1379. Now, you know how I feel about teen marriages. Blech. But, however... It was not as gross as many other marriages I've mentioned on this uh, platform before. Like, for example, the age gap uh, wasn't that of Empress Matilda and Heinrich of Germany level gross. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't that level because, like, Matilda was eight years old when she became engaged and he was 25. So that's totally nasty. They didn't do anything until she was 12, which... That doesn't make it any better. That's still gross. Um, Etienne, I believe, was 24 when him and Christine married. So not a great age gap, but it, it could have been worse. Also unusual for the time, this marriage was said to have been a very happy one, especially from Christine's perspective. And it is said that Etienne did support Christine's love of reading and writing. 
Christine is not known to have expressed wanting to pursue a writing career option, uh, you know, while they were married, which makes total sense because, uh, you know, he's, he works in the court. She wouldn't need to have like a job or a career. Etienne and Christine had three children during their 10-year marriage. They had a daughter called Marie and a son called Jean. There is no mention of the name of the third child, though, which likely means that, unfortunately, unfortunately uh, they died uh, probably at a young age. While on a diplomatic trip far away from the French court, Etienne grew ill and died, likely of the plague, in 1389. Christine was left a widow at 25 who would have to take care of her entire family. Like, can you imagine just not only being widowed at 25 after 10 years of marriage, but you just have to suddenly be the breadwinner? Like, she didn't even have the option to move back home with her parents because uh, her dad died in 1388. And sources vary on that date, but I think it was likely 1388. Um, And... So she was actually taking care of her mother and her niece at the time as well. So she she just had such a lot on her plate. It was bananas. Like, I feel like at 25, I had just, I had just finished my undergrad and uh, I was, you know, playing Mario Kart until I got, um, you know, my post, my first post-college job. So, you know, I, I personally, I can't imagine that experience. It must have been devastating. Christine made attempts to negotiate with the French bureaucracy for her husband's final salary and bonus that he was due, um, but she lacked the experience in handling financial situations. And I know lawyers existed at this time, but I do not think Christine could like afford one, or I'm not too sure if she would need a lawyer representing her in this sort of situation, um, but she was just handling all of this by herself. See, Etienne had died while on a job for the French king in another city, and this complicated matters uh, further in that he would have been paid differently for those responsibilities, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, at least to me. Like, if he was on a mission by the king, regardless of it being in a different city or not, like, his spouse should still receive his salary. Like, that's, you know, that's kind of a no-brainer even for me, but... I wasn't there. I don't know what kind of shit they were pulling. But uh, so whatever he was intended to make abroad, he could be paid later. I just, you know, I I don't get it. I'm not too sure why they just couldn't cut her some slack. Christine was regularly dismissed by government clerks she spoke with and would spend the next 13 years struggling with lawsuits in an attempt to win what was rightfully hers and to protect what her family had. I definitely think they dicked her around because she was a woman and again, not educated in finances. Christine had mentioned a few times in her life that she wished she would have received an education in finance in addition to her literary education. Completely 110% agree. And honestly, off topic for just a minute here, like I, you know, I am American. um, So I was raised in the Um, it's very obvious I'm American. Um, I was raised with the American education system and we had to take math every year from K through 12 every year. And like, sometimes you would meet your requirement early, but typically you did have to take it annually anyways. Um, but a lot of that math, I don't think I learned any sort of business or financial math until 
maybe my last year or two of high school, which is really ridiculous. I feel like a majority of the math that is taught, if you're going to make it a requirement, should be finance and business related. I knew a lot of people who, you know, here, as soon as you turn 18, you can apply for a credit card. And I knew a lot of people who applied for a credit card as soon as they turned 18 and got into a lot of trouble because they didn't understand interest rates. And, you know, if you don't come from a family that understands that and no one is teaching you that at school, well, you're going to get into trouble. Honestly, like, I do think math is important, but you know, people are going to run into financial and business situations their entire life. They're not going to really run into like math equations as far as throwing, finding the solution for X. I, you know, since high school, I have found no solution for X. So, okay. Since the law and estates were of little help to Christine, she had to figure out other ways to make some income. She was able to sell off some land and turn her writing or turned to writing poetry to distract herself from financial stress, all while still in the stages of grief. Christine would later state that her husband that had her husband not died, she would not have taken up a career as a writer and was fine being a wife and mother, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with being either. She would emphasize that her widowhood led to her writing. Christine's brothers had returned to Italy to take over some land that was owned by their father and helped a tiny bit broker land that Christine had sold, but other than that, I do not think they were of much support. Um, but that's not 100% sure, uh, 100% if that is true or not. Uh, I myself did not find more information about them. Uh, that doesn't mean they didn't try to support her in other ways, but from what I found, there was very little mention of either of them. As stated earlier, Christine's father was the one who introduced her to Greek classics, and also her husband had encouraged her to keep reading and writing. So she would write poetry for her own enjoyment, even prior to, so like prior to her husband's death, she was still writing poetry. She just didn't think about it as a career. It was more just for funsies. And Christine also, during that time, read more ancient history and worked her way up to the present era. She also started to explore the sciences and philosophies. Now, to my knowledge, books were not widely published or super available at the time, and literature or access to texts would not be made public for some time. And uh, at least that's my understanding. So, you know, I don't really know much about, you know, the dawn of publishing. But uh, so... Let's see. Therefore, this has drawn some speculation as to how Christine continued to have access to books. One theory is that she still somehow had access to the court library. Perhaps court officials like still allowed her some amenities of court life since her husband had died while on a courtly mission. I hope she got some free food from them too because food's expensive and those rich fucks, they, they eat a lot. Christine studied each subject diligently and in very, very fine detail. Poetry was her true love. Well, second to her husband, I guess. Um, by 1383, Christine had enough poetry completed to publish her first book, 100 Ballads, which was presented to the French court. The court 
ate it up like creme fraiche, and she received financial patronage and continued to write. Allow me to read you one of the poems from that book, which is one of my favorites, titled, See How True Love the Lover Doth Command. When Leander crossed the sea outright, in no pleasant vessel did he voyage, but naked and in secret and at night, he undertook the perilous passage for fairest hero and her lovely visage. She dwelt in a fort on the high highland, near Abydos shore. Such was his courage. See how true love the lover doth command, that lover of noble lineage oft passed. Those narrows the Hellespont by name, to see his lady concealing to the last, that passion which his heart did so inflame. But fortune that will thwart that very same, and brings trouble to many a noble man, raised a storm in the tempestuous main, see how true love the lover doth command. In that channel which was deep and wide, brave Leander perished, wretchedly, which so grieved the lady that she died, flinging herself wildly into the sea. Thus both were lost in one tragedy. Marvel, no words from me doth it demand, at how lovers enact the extraordinary. See how true love the lover doth command, though the fashion is lost, I would suggest, of loving in such a manner in our land. Yet great love makes fools of the wisest. See how true love the lover doth command. Christine was considered very entrepreneurial in her writing career, especially the more her audience grew. She also understood the novelty of being a woman writer, and how she could make that work to her advantage. Christine sought out other women to collaborate in the creation of her work. She makes special mention of a manuscript illustrator we know as Anastasia, whom Christine describes as being the most talented of her time. Another side hustle of Christine's is that she would work to transcribe and illustrate other writers' works. Christine was Italian by birth, but was devoted to France. She believed that France was discovered by the descendants of Troy. And I would say that she was a monarchist, perhaps because many of them were her patrons. Like she served a lot of court members and a lot of monarchy. Um, but I could also see Christine truly believing in the divinity of monarchy. It is a tiny bit, um, curious to me that she would be a monarchist and would, you know, praise the monarchy, um, especially after the difficulty she had with like the French government as far as getting her husband's salary. But so I do have to wonder if she was at her heart truly a monarchist or if she just knew how to, how do I say this, how to fluff up monarchy in her in her writing so she could make money. You know what I mean? Uh, but so there's a part of me that truly believes that Christine believes in the divinity of monarchy. And then there's another part of me that's a little skeptical and is like, mm, did she really? Or she tries trying to make some coin. Cause I mean, respect if she's just trying to make some money either way, she's a cool lady. Um, but she dedicated early ballads to members of the French court including Isabel of Bavaria and Louis, the 
I believe it's Louis I, Duke of Orléans, and Marie of Berry. So Isabel of Bavaria, real quick. So I lightly mentioned her before in my Joan of Arc episodes. And basically, she is the woman that many accused of, at the time, of ruining France. See, Christine was born in the midst of the Hundred Years' War, and no doubt she saw and heard a lot of shit go down. Well, Isabeau is regarded as, I quote, ruining France because of the negotiations of French territory being given to Henry V of England, who, Henry V of England was a real asshole, but anyways, okay, so I didn't quote anybody that's kind of me paraphrasing but um but Isabeau's husband Charles the sixth was mentally unstable and Isabeau had to uh take on kind of like a quasi leadership role and she was regarded by many historians for centuries as like Wayneton and an adulteress and a witch and uh, a witch in the sense where some people accused her of making the king mentally unwell and mentally unstable by like summoning sorcerers to like corrupt his mind so she could have power like some real real you know misogynistic bullshit la 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 la. anyways um so I don't know a whole lot about her but from what I do know she was treated pretty poorly also real quick fun fact so Isabeau of Bavaria is also from the house of Wittelsbach, which was the same house that uh, my favorite uh, Bavarian queer mystery Ludwig II was from. And I feel like Wittelsbach, like if I remember correctly, that house ruled the region of Bavaria for like 900 years, something just totally bananas. So they were a pretty powerful family. Christine did not share any negative views about uh, Isabeau of Bavaria, and she described Queen Isabeau as high, excellent crowned queen of France, very redoubtable princess, powerful lady, born at a lucky hour. In 1414, Christine presented Queen Isabeau with an intricately decorated collection of her own works. The bound book contained 30 of Christine's writings, and 130 miniatures. Christine was commissioned by the queen herself to produce the book, and the work is noted for its quality illuminations. Christine had herself and past royal patrons depicted within it. So some of you might have seen this uh, illustration from the text while doing your own self-study on Christine. As a mark of ownership and authorship, the opening front piece depicts Queen Isabeau being presented with a book by Christine. Another example of one of Christine's earliest works is a poem titled Alone Am I, Alone I Wish to Be, in which the speaker laments on the loss of her lover and how lonely she is. Unlike the literary traditions of courtly love, Christine does not write in a way where she wishes some brave knight would save her. That's not her jam. Her early poetry would feature a young female narrator who is either in love or mourning the loss of love. Alone am I to feed myself with weeping. Alone am I suffering or at rest. Alone am I and this pleases me the best. Christine was still quite young when she uh, became a widow and could easily have remarried but never expressed interest. In fact, 
I think that was another motivator in trying to establish herself as a writer. She may not have been um, like a savant in finance, but she knew money equaled stability and independence and, well, freedom. Sadly, not much has changed. With her newfound success and excellent reputation, Christine was able to secure a future for her children. Her son, Jean, is sent to be raised, or was sent to be raised, with the Earl of Salisbury in England. Could not find the dude's name, my apologies. Jean was to be raised alongside the Earl's own son. The Earl was a big fan of Christine's work, and it is implied that they had a pretty good standing with one another. So I stated earlier that this was during the midst of the Hundred Years' War, and after Jean went to stay with the Earl, the current King of England was Richard II. After a struggle between the nobles and Richard, he was put to death. Likely, he was starved to death. Then England got a new king, Henry IV, father of notorious war hero asshole Henry V. I mean, Henry IV was a dickhead too. So was Richard II. You know, if you're a monarch, you're probably not a good person. I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Anyway, Christine would later struggle to get her son back. King Henry wanted Jean to stay in his surface, but eventually Jean returned back to France. Jean was then placed in the care of the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Bold, and I believe Jean becomes, or like, I believe he became like a writer or also some kind of court secretary. Truth be told, the info I have on Jean could be a little wonky. The only information I could find was in French, and this is about as much as I could translate. Christine's daughter Marie became a nun in the Dominican Abbey in Poissy, I think that's how you say it, and would become a companion to Princess Marie, daughter of Isabel of Bavaria and Charles VI. There is no mention of when Christine's daughter Marie had passed away, nor any other information about her, which is unfortunate for all women who entered convents, as I feel like nuns were probably the most interesting people of that time. Well, top five at least. You know, they have a ton of good stories. 1399 was a big year for Christine. She published two stories, Letters of Orthea to Hector and Letter of the God of Love also known as Cupid's Letter. In the first story, Hector of Troy is taught lessons in government and virtue by the goddess Othea, and in the other, the narrator is a secretary in the court of love and reads a letter from the lord and god of the court, Cupid. This work picks up on a number of themes from courtly love literature, satirizes the inherent misogyny of the genre, which so often portrays women as being weak and in need of rescue, or as a wicked seducer, and emphasizes how poorly men treat women, and how the god of love wants to change that. In 1402, Christine published her Tale of the Rose, a critique of the best-selling poetic work The Romance of the Rose by Jean de Mion. The Romance of the Rose is an allegorical poem detailing how a lover should woo his beloved to win her heart and virginity. Courtly Love was obsessed with virginity, and like that obsession in literature, unfortunately never died for cis men. 
In Romance of the Rose, the lover enters a garden and must bypass various obstacles until they are finally able to pluck the rose of his desire. The first part of this poem was composed in 1230 by poet, uh, let's see if I get this right, Guillaume Delorie, who was a French scholar. The second part is by Jean de Mion, and it was written in 1275. Christine found Jean de Mion's section incredibly misogynistic, and her critique is in regards to the characterization of women as vile seducers and the source of all evil in the world. Christine also worried that the book would promote domestic violence. She worried husbands would be provoked to harm their wives after reading this poem, which, fair enough, it sounds really fucking awful. Christine considered herself a religious woman. Most everyone did at this point in time. She believed in virtue and religion, but she made sure to challenge misogynistic concepts in a way that would not get her killed. Though, I have to wonder if Christine was ever threatened by anyone. There's no record of her being threatened by anybody, but like, I really wouldn't be surprised. It's hard for me to imagine her not being verbally assaulted at some point in her career or to be at the end of some sort of like misogynistic microaggression. Christine would remark that men write Eve of Eve of Adam and Eve as being the source of all evil, but in her words, well, I'm paraphrasing here. So Eve was no more guilty than Adam. Both her and Adam were complicit in the sin of the apple. Christine stated that both Adam and Eve were equals and that Eve was given a fairly, given a pretty unfair treatment in the book of Genesis. I agree. Christine expanded her vision of the nature of womanhood and the feminine in her two most well-known works, The Book of the City of Ladies and The Treasure of the City of the Ladies, both released in 1405. The Book of the City of Ladies has been described as one of the earliest forms of feminist writing. The story is an allegory in which three women, reason, justice, and rectitude, build a city with the help of Christine, who is the story's narrator. The word lady is defined as a woman of noble spirit rather than noble birth. The city contains women of past eras, ranging from pagans to ancient Jewish women to medieval Christian saints. There is a discussion between Christine and the three virtues that are sent to aid Christine in building the city. The virtues aided in building the foundations and houses of the city, as well as choosing women that would reside in the city of ladies. Each woman chosen by the virtues acts as a positive example for other women to follow. These women are also great examples of the positive influence women have on society. Scholar Jill E. Wagner comments on this as, Christine anticipated the feminist necessity of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, but she builds on a grand scale and follows medieval tradition in deliberately selecting a city, not a room. While giving voice to the unvoiced, thus presenting her work with provocative new material, she adheres to an established, respectable historical model, St. Augustine's City of God. 
The treasure of the City of Ladies is kind of like a continuum of the previous story mentioned, though it is more, it's, it's more so like, hmm, it's more so like a practical guide for women in taking care of themselves, their homes, and their husbands' lands, while also emphasizing the importance of learning how to handle business affairs. The inspiration for this work was Christine's own experience with feeling helpless following the death of her husband and her inability to navigate the financial world of men. And honestly, now that I think about it, like really think about it, I'm sure a big part of denying women access to financial education is so they would just marry, like just leave the finances to your husband. I mean, you saw that argument in the fucking 1950s. Hello, it's like 500 years later. Uh, so 500 years ago, they're having the same argument as they were in the 50s. Like, just let your husband handle it. Um, and I'm sure like the medieval finance dude bros that Christine had to deal with just expected her to give up and marry some random dude. Going back a little in time, in 1403, Christine wrote The Mutation of Fortune, in which Christine compares the experience of widowhood and having to take on traditional male roles uh, to taking on the helm of the ship after a storm, or the helm of a ship after a storm. She describes how the character of fortune physically transforms her into a man. I do not think that this is that this transformation was Christine's way of saying being a man is better than being a woman. I do not think that this was, uh, that this transformation was Christine's way of saying being a man is better than being a woman, but I think she is conveying a sense of loss and change, uh, once she was placed in a position of responsibility. It is also stated to convey, uh, how powerless she felt as a woman, that fortune changed her into a man. I'll read you the passage. Just who I am, what all this meant, how I, a woman, became a man by a flick of fortune's hand, how she changed my body's form to the perfect masculine norm. I am a man, no truth I'm hiding. You can tell by how I'm hiding. And if I was female before, it's the truth and nothing more. In 1410, Christine was commissioned to write a book on the art of war called, it's a very long title, uh, The Book of Feats of Arms and of Chivalry, which described a just war, reasons for waging war, and suggestions on its prevention. Now, knowing uh, what I know about the Middle Ages, and especially about the time that Christine lived, like, war was just like an annual thing, or seasonal even. Um, like, can someone who is maybe more well-versed in medieval warfare tell me a time when it wasn't going down? Like, when the land of Europe was peaceful? Because I kind of feel like there wasn't a time. Like, I guess maybe there was less war during the Black Death, but, yeah, you know, people were still dying by the hundreds and thousands, so I don't know if that really counts. Uh doesn't really seem like prevention of war was ever really taken to heart, but I mean, sure, let's romanticize a theory. Christine advised that women should try to keep men from making war on their neighbors, as it was very costly on every level. In the Book of Peace, written in 1413, 
Christine discusses good government, the duty a government owes to its people, and suggestions on preventing armed conflict. I got a suggestion to prevent war. Uh, how about we stop letting cis men be in charge of literally everything? Capiche? In October of 1415, the French lost the Battle of Agincourt, and this was such a blow to Christine that she withdrew from society and retired to a convent. Christine's last work was The Tale of Joan of Arc, written in 1429, during the height of Joan's popularity. This was after Joan had recently lifted the Siege of Orléans, and all of France was celebrating the triumph. Christine's poem was the first to celebrate Joan, and the only one written in Joan's short lifetime. That we know of. Like, I hope a ton of queer peasants had, like, romantic poems and songs that they wrote about Joan. Like, that's just what I hope. And I think it's true. The peasantry love Joan. Tons of queer poems. I believe Joan represented everything Christine loved and admired in women. She was the heroine she had studied since she was a young child. You can tell in the poem that Christine had a genuine, profound admiration for Joan. It is uncertain if Joan was aware of the poem, but I hope she was. It is a long poem, but I will read a few parts for you. Stanza 3 Now, in 1429, the sun began to shine, the fair season returns anew that for so long was not in view, and many people lived in sorrow, among whom I was once so blue. But at last my grief I have retired, and I no longer mourn any more, for now I can see what I long desired. Stanza 31 Merlin, the Sibyl, and Bede foresaw her coming five hundred years ago, and told in their writings how she would end France's woe, they prophesied about her that she would carry France's banner in war and put an end to all the troubles, describing all she would do long before. Stanza 43 Oh, what honor for the feminine sex! God has shown his regard for it, in contrast to all the people who destroyed the kingdom and ran away and quit, now recovered and saved by a woman, who did what five thousand men could not, and now the traitors are no more. Who would have believed this before? Stanza 46 As for you, French rebels, who joined them, can you now see? Better it would have been to go forward than back, don't you believe, than becoming serfs to the English. Beware, more harm does not ensue, for you have been tolerated too long. Remember what the outcome will be for you. Indeed, it is true that Joan of Arc did what 5,000 men could not, and because of her, France still stands today. I have no doubt that if it wasn't for Joan of Arc, France would have just been torn to pieces, like just separated into territories amongst the nations, you know, like a pack of wolves and a piece of meat. Like France just would have been a piece of meat. And some people might argue how that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's an entirely different topic, though. I'm not going to go there. Um, still, I've said I've said it once. I've said it a hundred times. Like, France was just as complicit in Joan's death as the English were. 
and that is a hill I'm willing to die on, and I love how Christine refers to the French rebels as being serfs for the English. 100%. So one thing I'm going to say about the Joan poem that I did not appreciate, though was very much of its time, is uh, it gets real pro-crusader during a stanza, even invoking the word Saracen. And if you listen to my Joan episode, the word is like kind of like a medieval slur against Muslims and Arabs. And Christine talks about how Joan will return to the Holy Land to restore it back to the true faith. Look, I've said many, many times on this platform, but I think the Crusades were trash. Like just another example of Europeans always being the uninvited party guest who like eats all your food and stabs your mom at the same time. I just don't have a high opinion of them. And I actually, you know, I don't think I would ever do a podcast on them because it's a really complicated history. And so some of you might be listening to me and being like, well, you can't just blame Europe for everything. And I'm like, well, can I? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's very complicated. And But I would really personally like to research more stories from like the Eastern perspective, uh, more so than the West. I feel like we hear more Western stories and interpretations of the Crusades than we do the people that were actually occupying and living in that uh, holy land, holy land being quotes, uh, for centuries. And my understanding of that period is before the Crusades even really went down, like Christians and Jewish people and Muslims and Arabs, they like live together in a fairly cohesive harmony. That was at least what I've understood. And then shit really just popped off towards the end of the 11th century. I want to know why. I would love to know more about why. So am I going to do more personal research? Yes. Am I going to do a podcast episode about it? No. Anyways, so of course, though, Christine would write this like, she would like, you know, make a crusader reference in this stanza for Joan of Arc. Like the, there was, it was a very, very much uh, a passion of the time and all a part of this like crusade propaganda and Europeans just like jizz their pants for the crusade propaganda and many white male historians still to today. There is also the the overuse of the word crusades. Um, I feel like crusade has kind of misplaced or replaced the word mission. But I do think in this stanza, Christine is referring to an actual crusade. Like the whole, we're going to bring back the Holy Land because that's what good Christians do. And I'm just like, I don't care. Okay. End of crusade rant. So we don't know where Christine was buried or exactly what date she passed away. Most historians agree that she died in 1430, the same year Joan of Arc was murdered. For Christine's sake, I do hope she had passed away before Joan's imprisonment and her trial and her death. Okay, now I'm going to talk a bit about Christine's legacy. Christine published 41 known pieces of poetry and prose in her lifetime. Her fame exceeded that of the French court, 
and was read all throughout Europe. Christine's works were found in the libraries of royalty and contemporary intellectuals. The book of feats of arms and chivalry was translated into English in 1489 for new Tudor King Henry VII, which is interesting because Henry was fluent in French. Like, he lived uh, in France as an outcast for, like, ever, and he even had a French baby mama, so not too sure why it was translated in English for him, but that's what I found out. Anyways, uh, Elizabeth I had uh, quite a few of Christine's stories as well in her collection. The Book of the City of Ladies, Letters of Othea to Hector, and the Book of Feats and Arms. Elizabeth had also had a tapestry with scenes from the City of Ladies. Christine's writings and her legacy went into obscurity for some centuries. Don't ask me why, because I don't really know. Um, it could have been for a number of reasons, but I do think the limited publication and few translated copies could be a reason as to why. That's my theory, at least. I also feel like the, um, there was a higher population of people... Well, okay. I feel like if there was a higher population of people who could read and had access to books, then... You know, perhaps she would have been known throughout the centuries, but that's my guess. Like, she just would have had a larger fan base, and uh, that would have, I feel like those stories would have been passed down through generations, especially between women. But, you know, you can't teach peasants how to read because then they'll start getting ideas. Mathilde Blakely and Suzanne Salenti are credited for reviving the work of Christine in the 20th century. Mathilde made the observation that Christine's work had not ever been translated into Spanish, but she did notice that other writers had borrowed extensively from Christine's work. I did read somewhere that sometimes Christine's work did not have her name on it, uh, and I do believe that was intentional, So, because maybe people wouldn't want to buy from a woman writer, maybe you know, can't give people ideas, can't give women ideas that they too can write stories. Or men would just pick it up and be like, eh, a woman, what is she talking about? Something dumb? So I feel like my guess as to why it was not translated into Spanish, uh, post-Christine's time, uh, Spain was pretty preoccupied with colonialism and the Inquisition. So they had their hands pretty full. But, um, so I'd imagine that, no, nah, they wouldn't be interested in translating, the one, the work of a woman, and two, like, work that is both revolutionary and progressive in thought and about gender equality. Like, that was not Spain's jam. I just want to clarify, too, about the um, Christine's name on her work. So during her lifetime, Christine always made sure to sign her name on her text. Uh, what I was referring to, or what I was referencing, is after Christine's time and how her stories were circulating. But there's a theory that, you know, her name wasn't always included on a lot of translations uh, for, like, original works, which I think was intentional. Christine would go on to become a feminist icon because of both her subject matter and the way in which she broke from societal norms of the time and adopted a career. That is not to say mothers and wives cannot also be feminist. They definitely can. 
but Christine made a career of off of her art long before many other women would get the same opportunities. So there has been some discussion within the feminist movement um, regarding if Christine did enough during her lifetime for women to be considered a feminist. Now, I, I completely understand this argument because feminism in its truest form is inclusive, meaning it is for all women, poor, middle-class, disabled, queer, trans, women of color, and beyond. And it is uh, not just for women as anyone Feminism is not just for women, as anyone can call themselves a feminist. One just needs to advocate for the good treatment of women in all forms. You can't be for some women and not be for other women. That's not feminism. Feminism is you are for all women. Christine did not rally in the streets to bring about equality for women, but I don't think that means we should revoke her feminist sash and title. If Christine had taken to the streets and urged women to leave their abusive husbands, or better yet, poison their abusive husbands, would that be amazing? Absolutely, 100%. Would she have gotten into so much trouble for doing it? Yeah, most likely. Christine's writing was revolutionary for its time. She wrote about gender norms, societal expectations, and advocated for the equal and fair treatment of women. She made sure to discuss all of this by invoking all she had learned and thus was able to create a kind of literature that combines old world characters with progressive thought. Had Christine been vocally anti-monarchy or anti-establishment, she would have risked her own safety and the safety of her family. Christine needed to make money. The analysis of whether Christine was a good feminist or a bad feminist to me is a bit unfair. Like I understand the root of that argument, but really it's still a bit unfair to me because I think Christine did what she could do within her position and within her lifetime. And to me, she is, yes, an early example of a feminist icon. Despite the critiques, Christine is well represented in feminist art and literature. In Judy Chicago's infamous art piece, the dinner party, Christine is given her own place setting. Her plate is painted as an abstract butterfly form, painted in swirling vibrant hues of red and green. Chicago describes the form as having one wing raised in a gesture of defense to symbolize her efforts to protect women. The runner is done in tones from the same color palette, and jagged flame-like forms adorn the edges. The wavy, colorful pattern is characteristic of Barquello needlepoint, also referred to as Florentine stitch, which originated in medieval Italy. Judy Chicago stated this design, which appears to be encroaching on the plate, represents the suffocating Renaissance era constraints on women. On the front of the runner, embroidered on the illuminated capital C in her name, is the scene I mentioned earlier of Christine presenting her works to Queen Isabeau, which is presented as a gift of knowledge and feminism to the medieval world. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode on Christine de Pizan. 
These are my sources for this episode, and I will be linking them on a future post via my blog at findinghistorypodcast.blogspot.com. My sources include brooklynmuseum.org, amedievalwomanscompanion.com, medievalist.net, poetryintranslation.com, madeinheaven.com, and worldhistory.org. For podcasts, I checked out two podcasts. Uh, So the first one was Christine de Pizan and the Book of the City of Ladies from Stuff You Missed in History Class. And the second was a BBC podcast, In Our Time, Culture, Christine de Pizan. And oh my god, guys, the last one, okay, I don't make a habit of trashing podcast hosts. Uh, I feel like if you don't like a podcast, just don't listen. I mean, definitely warn people if it's like sending a harmful message, but if it's just not your jam, it's not your jam. So I don't, I don't make it a habit of like trash talking podcast, but like this host of the, uh, in our time, uh, Melvin Bragg, like he had two women professors on his episode, on this episode. So Helen Swift and Marilyn Desmond were on the show to discuss Christine and the entire time he kept talking over them entire time. Like they would be in the middle of full, full paragraph summaries of uh, Christine. And he'd be like, Oh, by the way, blah, blah, blah. and God, Oh my God. Like even like, even at one point he told one of them to just get to the point. Like, are you kidding me, dude? Who gave you a job? Um, I, I could tell by one of, by just the tone of, I believe it was Helen, uh, that she was just not having it. She was so irritated. And I commend both of those women for staying calm in that situation. I, I would have struggled. So my hat's off to both of them. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to show your support, uh, get updates on future episodes, or just say hello, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. And if you really love this podcast, only if you love it, you can leave me a review on, uh, I believe you can do it on Google or Apple Podcasts. I think you can do it on Spotify as well, but I'm not too sure. But apparently reviews, you know, get me noticed and get me more listeners. So if you do love this podcast or you think I'm funny, uh, this podcast is your jam, then please show your support and give me a positive review. If you did not like this podcast, I'm sorry you didn't like it, but please don't tell the world you didn't like it. And for even more content, photos, summaries, episode links, uh, source information, you can check out my blog at findinghistorypodcast.blogspot.com. So until we meet again, stay safe and stay awesome. Bye-bye.